This week on the Backtable Podcast. I will just say one thing, which I think is going to be the way of the future. And we're trying to build the evidence for this, but, but hopefully it makes sense. And it's this idea of radiogenomics, which is that probably a large portion of the unexplained toxicity is that we don't understand who's going to get side effects and, and how they might be sensitive to radiation. And so one of my active areas of research, not just mine, but, but other people as well, is to see if we can maybe move away from just a gestalt towards, can we do a screen to see if someone is a better candidate for one form of radiation or another, or maybe just a better candidate for surgery by looking at their DNA, their germline DNA. There's likely to be something very similar to, you know, the field of pharmacogenomics, something intrinsic to patients that might govern their reaction to radiation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I can make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Amar Kishan from UCLA Department of Radiation Oncology, where he is the chief of the GU service and an associate professor. Welcome to the show, Amar. How's it going up in LA? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Aditya. This is a true honor. It's great. Can't complain too much except about the traffic. All right. Well, fair enough. Yeah, that's kind of been my experience as I relocated out to Southern California, but there's a, a lot, a lot of perks. So I'm thrilled for the episode today. You know, I've done a lot of, I think, actually not just groundbreaking research, but approaches to research, utilizing some existing data. And uh, today I really hope to kind of pick your brains on, on how you think about favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. And I know it's narrow, but I think there are some nuances here on the radiation oncology side that are that are worth discussing. So, you know, let's let's just assume that we've decided that treatment's the right approach for a patient with favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. In your mind, when you're intaking a patient, you know, what are the factors that are most critical to you? Yeah, I think the most important things for favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer are gonna be kind of the baseline patient characteristics and preferences. Specifically, because this is so curable, we really want to focus on optimizing post-treatment quality of life and kind of managing expectations. And so I like to talk specifically about urinary function, bowel function, and sexual function right off the bat. And also uh, maybe address some concerns that patients may have. Because although you and I know very well that favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer is highly treatable and highly curable, lots of patients are, you know, incredibly anxious about the diagnosis, understandably so. Yeah, absolutely. My first question to any new cancer diagnosis patient is, how are you doing? How are you handling this? You know, even if it is grade group one, they may be, you know, off the walls. So when you're intaking these parameters, standardized questionnaires, are you a AUA symptom score guy, an EPIC guy? How do you intake patients? 
Yeah, you know, I, I do make them fill out a lot of uh, paperwork, so I'm sure that's annoying on their end, but I, I like to give them the IPSS questionnaire because I think that's a quick, easy way of thinking about things, as well as the uh, EPIC 26, the sort form, and sometimes the SHIM as well. So that's a, that's a lot of paperwork, but I think it is helpful to kind of really addressing where people are at, uh, particularly with the IPSS, because it kind of nicely lists out what is your frequency, urgency, intermittency, weak stream, how many times are you getting up per night? And what I like to tell patients is whatever you filled out here, it's going to move to the right for everything in the short term following radiation. It may go up by one to two points or maybe even three points on each individual symptom score axis. But ideally, we would like it to come down, you know, maybe three to six months after radiation to, to kind of closer to the baseline time point. I think that's fair. And in general, I think having that information, and certainly as a part of an academic practice, it's nice to have that. I feel like urologists are pretty comfortable with obtaining a sexual and a urinary history. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the relevant bowel history? Yeah. So what I like to ask patients about is kind of their colonoscopy history first. You know, how often have they had a colonoscopy or they do for one soon? Because it can influence when we want to time the treatment, if we want them to get a colonoscopy before they move forward, if they, for example, haven't had one or are due for one soon. I like to specifically ask about frequency of bowel movements, if they have any baseline urgency in the mornings, for example, if they have any history of hemorrhoids, painful hemorrhoids, any history of bleeding or any history of a, a bowel surgery. Yeah, I recently had a patient, actually newly diagnosed, small volume METs, who I thought, in addition to systemic therapy, radiation would be a good option. And when I kind of dug into it a bit, he had several procedures for anal fissures. You know, I kind of came in guns blazing. He was a healthy patient that, you know, we'll, we'll probably have to see the radiation oncologist. And then when he brought that up, I was like, well, I'd kind of sold it as we really want to be aggressive here. And then I had to back off a little bit. Any kind of relative or absolute contraindications to, to radiation? I think the major ones would be um, a prior history of pelvic radiation. We would, we would shy away from recommending, you know, a second course of radiation, except in very, very extenuating circumstances, active inflammatory bowel disease. You know, there are many other treatment options these patients have. There are certain types of rare radiosensitivity syndromes like ATM. I mean, these are extremely rare. And then I, I think, you know, relative contraindications would be significant urinary symptoms at baseline, like obstructive urinary symptoms. For example, someone comes in, they have IPSS of 35. If they're a good candidate for surgery, they should get surgery. You know, they, I mean, they shouldn't get any form of radiation. It's going to be very difficult in the acute and long-term setting, recovering from urinary side effects in, in a situation like that. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I think favorable intermediate risk patients, and we'll, we'll kind of get into this, are a bit more straightforward than the unfavorable intermediate risk where you're generally not going to be thinking about adding on androgen deprivation therapy. So in my mind, you know, a lot of the cardiac toxicity considerations are a little less relevant. Do you agree? I do agree. I think it's the other aspect that's worth considering too is the requirement for any form of post-operative therapy or the expectation of post-operative therapy. I think with favorable intermediate risk, it's very much, you know, this is it. You should be cured after whatever treatment you decide. So for instance, that patient with, you know, an IPSS of 35, they get surgery. I mean, ideally they would be done. They're cured of their cancer and we don't need to worry about needing to come in sometime later with radiation. As you get into high-risk prostate cancer, you know, there's a, a certain likelihood of needing some form of multimodality therapy down the line where it might not be so clear cut one treatment versus the other. 
So with patients that have more advanced lower urinary tract symptoms and they're on, you know, some reasonable regimen, Flomax, Cialis, Finasteride, et cetera, and maybe just really averse to surgery or maybe they have some contraindications, TERPs prior to radiation? Yeah, I think TERPs and HOLIPs are, are good to consider prior to radiation. I would delay the radiation by at least eight weeks afterwards. I, I like to wait 12 weeks if I can at a minimum. Uh, this is because of the risk of hematuria if you jump into radiation too soon, both in the acute setting and potentially in the long-term setting. But yeah, I found it to be very, very helpful. I've, I've seen a number of patients that have really severe lower urinary tract symptoms. They get even a holdup and they're done, they're cured of that. And it makes it much easier to manage when we have to come in and do radiation. Yeah. And I think that there's good quality data, nice data actually that emerged from the pandemic. And clinically, I feel like we all know this, that there's really no rush to jump in on a favorable intermediate risk patient. So you've got time, talk to patients off the ledge. I think trying to handle their lower urinary tract symptoms before radiation would typically be preferable. What if they have a median lobe? Does that, well, actually, so we've talked a bit about patient-specific factors, and I think barring any uncommon scenarios, active bowel disease, previous radiation, most patients are going to be a candidate if they've got some lower urinary tract symptoms that's worth digging into. But when you're, you're kind of starting to think about, yeah, this patient's ready, are there any prostate-specific imaging tests that you like to get routinely before thinking about recommendations? Yeah, for favorable is immediate risk, I always like to get an MRI. Many patients already have that this day and age, you know, coming in to see me because I'm not, you know, diagnosing them. But if they haven't had one, I recommend one if we're radiation planning. So, you know, for ANCCM guidelines, it might not be indicated for local regional staging per se in favorable intermediate risk disease, but I think it's very helpful for radiation planning. And it gives us a, an idea if we want to particularly assess for extracapsular extension or abutment near the capsule, if we want to evaluate for something like hydrogel placement, which I'm sure is something that, that will come up in, in the future discussion, or looking at, is there a you know, dominant intraprostatic lesion that maybe we want to treat to a slightly higher dose? These things can be teased out on an MRI. On the other hand, because UCLA is a pretty high volume PSMA pet center, I'm often in the position of actively dissuading patients from trying to get a PSMA pet. A PSMA pet is very, very, very unlikely to show any extraprostatic disease or change management in any way in someone with a favorable intermediate risk disease. So I actually don't think anything beyond an MRI is, is needed. Totally agree. And for me, unless there's a contraindication, really, if they're coming with an elevated PSA, I like to start with an MRI to see what I'm kind of getting into. You know, it just occurred to me that we didn't actually define favorable intermediate risk. And there's various definitions out there. And uh, not to kind of put you on the spot, but well, actually, I'll back up, you know, so I think broadly, you either have grade group one with PSAs greater than 10, less than 20, or you have grade group two, Gleason score three plus four equals seven with PSAs less than 10. And I just don't think that we have the quality of data to indicate that, you know, percent pattern four or core involvement or number of cores is really like a mega driver here. Is this how you're kind of broadly thinking about favorable intermediate risk? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I go by the NCCM definitions, which is essentially what you said, you know, adding maybe if someone has multiple intermediate risk features, you know, they would fall into that category and then high volume as well. So more than 50%, or I should say 50% or more cores positive on the systematic biopsy. I do consider that as an unfavorable factor as well. So just out of curiosity, when you're counseling patients about 
you know, what the likelihood of them being cured with radiation monotherapy, what does that kind of look like? I think for favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, um, we're looking at the cure rates at seven to 10 years on the order of 90%. Now, I think it's important to define what, what do we mean by cure? Because oftentimes we're treating, you know, an older patient population than you are. So we tend to look at this kind of composite outcome of biochemical recurrence-free survival. And so sometimes patients pass away of another disease. And so we, you know, the longer term data beyond seven to 10 years can be hard to come by in, in some of these series just because we're treating older patients, but that, that falls into that. So if you look at, for example, another way of thinking about it, that would be cumulative incidence of distant metastasis for favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer. I think there we can say by very, very much less than 5% at 10 years. So, so highly curable in, in that sense as well. Yeah, those are basically exactly the numbers that I quote, 90 to 95% curative. And I think it's important because many patients are fairly hung up on the idea of having a contingency plan if their primary modality fails. And I think it's conceivable that urologists might play into that fear a bit, but it's actually pretty small, especially for favorable intermediate risk. That's just my opinion as a urologist. The other thing that I would just mention is my radar of and my kind of level of concern for a PSA of 11 in grade group one is actually quite different than basically any grade group two. Do you have any opinions on that? You know, assuming you have an MRI and there's not something kind of nefarious camped out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you touched on this, but favorable intermediate risk itself is very heterogeneous too. I mean, the whole reason we have this is because intermediate risk was really heterogeneous so that they defined these strata. But favorable is pretty heterogeneous too. You know, someone would, I think the Gleason grade is probably the most prognostic of all of the components here. So as you were alluding to someone that just eked out a PSA of 11, so they're suddenly intermediate risk, but they're Gleason grade group one is probably has a much better prognosis than someone that's Gleason grade group two, but has a PSA of eight, even though both of them have a overall pretty good prognosis. So I certainly agree. I, I personally think probably the Gleason pattern is the most important and then the volume of disease, kind of the percent of systematic pores that are positive. And are you routinely ordering any molecular tests, you know, Decipher, Oncotype, Prolaris, you know, whatever to, to help kind of sort things out in this context? Yeah, I am more and more as we get more data and more Medicare and other insurance approvals, I tend to favor the Decipher test just because from my standpoint, it's what has the most data to guide a radiotherapy decision. And the main question, because you'd said kind of at the outset, this patient's probably declined surveillance. So we're already thinking of treating them. For me, the main question is, do I want to add androgen deprivation therapy to the treatment? Do I want to intensify their treatment? And so I'm, I would be getting a decipher test to rule out the possibility uh, albeit rare that they have a biologically more aggressive form of cancer where I might want to add androgen deprivation there. Yeah, and absolutely kind of want to dig into this a little bit further. You know, there's a, a clinical trial, which I think is being led by one of my colleagues and dear friends, Neil Desai. Yes. Looking at kind of de-escalating ADT among unfavorable intermediate risk patients that have a, let's call it a favorable decipher score. And what you're describing, Amar, do you think the Decipher test is prime time enough where you can actually incorporate that in your decision-making or should that be happening in the context of a trial? 
That's a great question. And I'll answer that in two ways, a little bit cheaply, I guess. The first would be, I think, obviously, if we could do a, a clinical trial of intensifying treatment, that would be the best context to validate this, right? But I think the feasibility of that was probably difficult to do now that these tests are commercially approved. So what would prevent, say, a patient from saying, well, can you just order the test? Then if it comes back as high, I would like to have androgen deprivation therapy. It's hard to kind of deprive that from the patient. But the flip side would be, I think that de-intensifying therapy has a little bit of a higher bar than intensifying therapy. Because if we take a step back, if I wanted to say, well, we have all these randomized trials that included intermediate risk, not stratified based on unfavorable versus favorable, and asked, did they show a benefit to adding ADT in intermediate risk prostate cancer? The answer is yes. So I feel like I could be justified in saying intermediate risk prostate cancer, I want to add ADT. We've peeled back now that we've understood that maybe some very favorable forms, the benefit is likely not worth it, maybe doesn't reach statistical significance. But I think it's a different question than in the more aggressive forms of unfavorable disease, removing a therapy that has consistently been shown to improve outcomes. So, you know, intensifying, I think, going back to an older historical standard in selected cases already has some evidence behind it, whereas de-intensifying has not as much evidence behind it and, and definitely requires a trial. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking about molecular classifiers in my practice, and they're usually kind of in predefined clinical states, largely speaking. And it full admission, I generally try to get them when I think they're going to tell me what I want to hear and what the patient wants to hear. But I do, as a matter of routine, kind of have a threshold to do something a priori before ordering the test. And I can kind of imagine that you're sitting with motivated 62-year-old patient, favorable intermediate risk, who's nervous, family history, so on. And you say, okay, Mr. So-and-so, since you've asked, we can get a deciphered test. And if your risk of metastases is higher than whatever threshold we set today, we can add on, you know, four to six months of ADT. Because I think retrofitting that once you have the test actually becomes challenging. I 100% agree. Um, the way I tend to think about it and the way I present it to patients is adding ADT has a benefit, right? And it probably has a relative benefit of reducing the chance of metastasis maybe on the order of 40%, like the hazard ratio might be 0.6. The absolute benefit is going to highly vary based on whether you have favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer and your chance of dissonance of 10 years is only 3% or it's unfavorable and that chance is 10, 15%. That bang for your buck, the absolute risk reduction is so much greater in someone with unfavorable intermediate risk that it's a non-brainer, it's a no-brainer to at least recommend it. Whereas for favorable, I think that's a personalized decision. There might be a 60 year replacement, like you said, that's highly motivated that says, you know what? I want to cut that 3% risk to 1.5%. It's worth it to me to do the four to six months of ADT. And I wouldn't order the test in a patient like that because it's not going to influence them truly, right? If the patient really wants to do it. Exactly like you, I find myself more ordering a test in an unfavorable intermediate risk patient that doesn't want to do ADT, hoping that it would come back saying, look, you really got to do ADT. But yeah, that's just how it goes. And then what about, you know, just kind of standard parameters. So radiographic parameters, rectal exam, and then PSA, core involvement, percentage pattern four. Are there specific factors just within those widely clinically available tests that may influence your decision to order or not order ADT? 
I think the one thing that could influence this is some things we see on the biopsy that are a little bit more rare, but can occur like cribriform pattern. Like if, if you see a cribriform pattern, it's a default Gleason grade group two, right? The Gleason pattern four. And so there are some data to suggest that particularly if the cribriform is intermixed with the introductal, that the prognosis is worse. The risk of bipolar occurrence is higher. And I tend to favor using ADT, even if the other clinical parameters are otherwise favorable. So that's the main one. I think if there's something like capsular abutment and like a suspicion four out of five of the ECE on the MRI, that's another risk factor. I think that I would take a little bit more seriously. And that would certainly, at least in that case, order the decipher test and mention ADT. Okay. I think that's fair. And I mean, there is a gestalt to this, you know, as much as I think we try to be as evidence-based and data-driven, but if there's enough red flags, you know, strong family history, multiple cores, a slightly more concerning MRI, perhaps the biopsies were done by a urologist that you're less familiar with and you think there could have been some undersampling potentially, you, you take it into account. And I, I mean, if I'm not reading into this, maybe getting a decipher test in those slightly more concerning situations to help guide the next steps is how you practice? Yeah. I mean, I would say that in, in anyone in whom I'm concerned, there's some X factor, like any of the things you mentioned, or, you know, cribriform disease, intralecal disease, family history, concerning MRI, getting a decipher to guide the intensification of ADT or simply just intensifying ADT, kind of going back to the older evidence that exists to support that, I think is, is reasonable. Okay. So we talked, I think, about some of the specifics on information we get from the biopsy, some of the radiographic information, incorporation of molecular classifiers, then any, any just kind of prostate anatomy concerns that are, you know, if they have a large prostate, no significant symptoms or a median lobe, no significant symptoms, does that impact you in any way or or not? I think symptoms are are the most important thing, but if they have a large prostate or a median lobe, I do counsel them that the significance of their acute radiation-related urinary symptoms is going to be a little bit higher. I've seen that in, in many cases, uh, especially after some of the more abbreviated courses of radiation that we do these days with a higher dose per fraction. We see inflammation and swelling of the prostate radiographically during the course of radiation and for some time afterwards. So it, it is highly possible that someone with a large prostate but without any symptoms will develop significant symptoms during the course of radiation or, you know, the acute time frame afterwards. So I always keep that in mind. Okay. I think it's a kind of a historical tale that's been passed down that, you know, prostate's greater than 50 grams or if they have a median lobe, those are relative contraindications. I think actually in many patients after the acute phase, their symptoms actually improve. Yeah. Over time, the prostate will shrink as a response to radiation. And so there are some reports, if you follow like, the curves on these clinical trials of some improvements in patient reported outcomes over time. Although I wouldn't ever kind of guarantee or, or counsel that to anybody, but it does shrink the prostate. And yeah, I agree. These are largely historical relative contraindications and, and they should be trumped by symptoms. So just because someone has a big prostate or a median lobe, but they're not symptomatic, I, I, that's not a contraindication to proceeding with raise. And then what about sexual function? How do you kind of talk about that? Yeah. So I think that's oftentimes the number one priority among younger men. And the thing that I counsel them about is that the radiation, the way I, I like to think about it and explain it is it is a factor that accelerates the natural aging process. So the, the pathophysiology of radiation-induced 
erectile dysfunction is not fully understood, but we think it's predominantly vascular in etiology. It's not necessarily due to nerve injury, but, but due to neurovascular effects, particularly kind of in the neurovascular bundles and even the internal pudendal artery uh, and some of those tissues. So I counsel them that if you look at patient reported outcomes and like SIM scores, you know, a percentage of patients that can obtain an erection that were able to initially, it drops to about 50% within three to five years of radiation. Now, there's plenty of possible confounders here, like we're treating an older population to begin with, and there's a, a certain percentage of patients that are going to develop ED per year over time anyway. But that said, I mean, obviously there's an impact. And so I, I know there are some radiation oncologists out there that would say, no, there's no impact for not affecting nerves. I mean, of course there's an impact. And I counsel my patients that we're, we're accelerating the course of aging. Uh, if you're not using any PD inhibitor medications now, you, you may very well need to. Potentially, we would start one prophylactically. Actually, there's some data to support doing that. And I, I would say that still overall, there's less nerve injury, right, with, with the radiation than with radical prostatectomy. We could look at, say, the PROTECT trial, you know, in this patient population to kind of look at that. But there is an, a long-term impact. Yeah. And it's interesting. I just had a really nice conversation with our men's health specialist here, Mike Shea and Darshan Patel. And we were, we were talking about this, you know, they have a men's health clinic. They obviously see a fair amount of post-prostate treatment ED. And I think on the urology side, it's, you know, it's pretty typical, you know, you're going to get a prostatectomy. If you look at high quality data, the likelihood of having spontaneous erections all comers is kind of in that 20 to 40% range. It's not a 95% guarantee that you're going to have erections that, you know, maybe were quoted once upon a time. But as you also mentioned, you know, there's there's a pretty dramatic drop off. And if you look at baseline erectile dysfunction among patients receiving radiation, it's not great, likely due to the more advanced age. And you do see these declines where the number I have in my head is, you know, about anywhere 60% of patients, give or take, may have some component of ED. And I think it's wonderful, A, that you do discuss and prescribe PD-5 inhibitors. Um, also curious, though, how often are you ever referring to men's health specialists to discuss intracavernosal injections, urethral suppositories, vacuum erection devices? Because I kind of wonder if this is an incidence thing or if it's a mindfulness practice pattern thing. Yeah, that's a good question. We do have a very uh, good men's health clinic here at Jesse Mills and Andrology. You know, the way our clinic is set up, I'm on... I'm in the second basement, that's where they keep us, and he's on the first floor. And so I refer a lot of patients to him. Honestly, it's a little bit more in the follow-up setting. So kind of as you're alluding to, I think it's, it can sometimes be reactionary. But many of the patients that I see here are actually referred jointly to him before treatment decisions. So they've already seen him before. And then it's me kind of setting them up as a follow-up after the treatment has been done. So many patients at the time of consult already have seen our, our men's health practitioner if they're coming through the UCLA system. But otherwise, I mean, I, I think it is a missed opportunity to try to kind of more have a kind of multidisciplinary approach to, to men's health. I could probably refer more proactively. Yeah. I'm, and I mean, I think we're all kind of guilty of this, right? If you don't ask, you're not going to know. I mean, I... Up until recently, I think I'd probably ask like a sum total of like five women about their like sexual health when thinking about bladder cancer and other GU cancers. So don't worry, I'm, I'm not trying to beat you up on this one. It's uh, it's one that we're all kind of, I think we can do a better job of. All right. So we've got our patient, we've decided treatment, favorable intermediate risk. 
maybe, maybe not. You've gotten your classifier and talked a bit about ADT. I'm guessing no more than four to six months. Is that fair? Correct. Yeah. And I think a lot of exciting data coming out of your lab and your group that maybe the adjuvant component of ADT is a bit more critical than the neoadjuvant part. So in terms of timing, are you a big stickler? A couple of weeks, six weeks, a month? Do you feel strongly? Just get it in before we start? Yeah, you know, I actually think that the adjuvant component is more important. Um, there's going to be some additional information coming on that soon. So my standpoint is, unless they have a really big prostate that we're trying to downsize for some reason, there's no need to, to delay the radiation. And we don't, I mean, this isn't necessarily new. I mean, in Europe, all of those trials were run and the ERDC has run so many trials of ADT versus no ADT. They all started at ADT at the time that radiation started. So, you know, it's not like this is necessarily, that's been the standard of care in Europe. In the U.S., it has more been neoadjuvant for about two months beforehand, and then you, then you start the radiation. I don't think that's necessary. And I think the adjuvant portion is, is more useful. So I don't ever delay the radiation just to wait for the ADT to kick in. Okay. So why don't you just kind of walk through your kind of comprehensive toolkit? I feel like for patients and even for practitioners, it can get overwhelming. We've got external radiotherapy, plus or minus brachytherapy, with or without nodes, hypofractionated, ultra-hypofractionated, protons. You know, when, when you kind of think about this and trying to organize it in your brain, what, what are your kind of options for a favorable intermediate risk? Yeah, for favorable intermediate risk, I, I would say that all of the, I'll start off by saying all of the options are very successful, highly likely to be curative. Broadly speaking, the two forms of radiation are going to be external beam radiotherapy, which is largely x-ray based. I think we can circle back to protons later if you want, but largely x-ray based where a dose of radiation is delivered per day or internally administered via brachytherapy. So those are kind of like the two broad types of radiation treatment. Within external beam radiation, historically, we used to give a low dose per day over the span of up to nine weeks, up to 45 treatments. This was largely done because we thought that that was the, what could be done safely. Many cancers actually respond more favorably to low dose per treatment taken to a high total dose of radiation. We've since learned that prostate cancer actually responds better to a higher dose per day. And so it's been aggressively studied over the past couple of decades, moving from nine weeks of radiation to five and a half to four weeks of radiation, and now to ultra hypofractionated radiotherapy, which is stereotactic body radiotherapy, which is a five-day course of radiation, largely speaking. There is a uh, European trial that was a large non-inferior trial that actually used seven fractions of radiation. In the US, for billing reasons, it's SBRT if it's five treatments. So I explained to patients that SBRT is not cutting ends. It's been around for many, many years. The first patient treated with SBRT was treated in the year 2000. So there's long-term evidence now supporting the non-inferiority, particularly in this disease setting, uh, favorable intermediate risk, long-term data for efficacy and safety, non-inferiority to the longer courses of radiation. So I think that's a very attractive option. And so, you know, again, to summarize for external beam radiation, you can go conventional, the long course, nine weeks, you can do the moderate hypofractionation, which is four to five and a half weeks, or you can do SBRT, which is five days of radiation. I think they're all equally effective and have similar side effect profiles. And the five days, is that every other day or is that Monday through Friday? I believe it's best to do it every other day, 
we have some retrospective data that there's less toxicity that way. And so that's been our standard here. I think if you need to do two fractions in a row for whatever reason, that's fine. But I, I would sigh away from doing all five in a row. Okay, super helpful. And, you know, I kind of think about it, the more precise and the more higher dose per day, you get in and out a little bit quicker. It's a little bit higher risk, higher reward. If you have any off-target radiation, it can be a bit more problematic. And in my mind, that translates to SBRT is something that should probably be done in a pretty high volume center of excellence. Conventionally fractionated radiotherapy should really be a pretty common tool to most people that have completed a radiation oncology training. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. But I, I would also say that, you know, as we get better and better technology, we should ideally be applying that same precision and sophistication, even to the longer courses of radiation too. But I, I think in, in some sense, and my field has been guilty of this, this thought that you need to be so precise when you're doing five treatments. Well, you should also be precise when you're doing many treatments, right? You don't want to have off-target effects at any point, but certainly you're correct. I think the stakes are higher. You need to have a, a good treatment delivery system. You need to have medical physicists as well, planners, therapists, as well as the radiopsychologists that are comfortable with doing SBRT before kind of jumping into it for sure. And, you know, there's all kinds of different advances in that field, things that we're looking into here, like MRI-guided radiation. There's also fiducial marker-based radiation where, you know, metallic markers are placed into the prostate to help guide the radiation as well. And so I think any of the forms of external radiation are totally acceptable for favorable intermediate risk. Reiki therapy is implanted radiation. And broadly speaking, there's low dose rate Reiki therapy, which is where the brachytherapy pellets are placed transperianally and left in place in the prostate. And then high dose rate brachytherapy, which is typically a two-time process in which the uh, pellets are only placed temporarily in an outpatient setting, left in there for maybe five to 15 minutes, taken out, and the patient comes back uh, one week later to get the second treatment. That's high dose rate brachytherapy, which is what we do at UCLA, but LDR or low dose rate brachytherapy, the permanency implant, highly effective as well. I would not recommend the brachytherapy boost for someone with favorable intermediate risk disease. I think we have data from a trial that hasn't been published yet, but was presented several years ago that found equal efficacy to brachytherapy monotherapy versus brachytherapy boost with more toxicity with the boost. So I think for this disease setting of favorable intermediate risk, brachy mono is a great option. That's you know just either the permanent seeds or a two-time temporary seed placement is also highly effective. Now, we kind of mentioned earlier space sores. So these are hydrogel spacers to get by a little extra real estate between the rectum and the prostate. When are you using those? And are you putting fiducials in at the same time? And who are you using fiducials in? Yeah, great question. So for space or, yeah, there are data predominantly from the longer fractionation regimens that placing a spacer, A, reduces dose to the rectum. That's pure physics, so that that will happen. And two, in the long term, may reduce the, the rate of rectal bleeding. It might improve patient-reported rectal outcomes. And, and that kind of, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense, right? De reducing the dose of the rectum should improve rectal toxicity over time. I think the question comes back to kind of absolute benefit in when you get to a patient that has significant baseline rectal problems, but we're still pursuing radiation. I think the spacers is very, very helpful in those patients. And I would say, you know, with favorable intermediate risk disease, ideally none of these patients have any 
concern for extracapsular abstention, which would be a contraindication if it's in the posterior setting. So they should all be candidates for it. And then it largely boils down to, unfortunately, insurance coverage. So Medicare covers it. Some commercial insurers covers it, but many don't. And it's actually quite expensive if it's not covered. And so that's one of the major limiting factors. We've looked at our clinic numbers. About 40% of patients are getting the spacer at UCLA. And those who are not, it's a mix of not being covered or having kind of gross extracapsular disease and not being a good candidate for that reason. In terms of the fiducial markers, so fiducial markers we used to use on everybody, and that's because it helps with narrowing the margins needed for treatment. As, as you and I both know very well, and listeners too, prostate is a mobile target. So let's say that the radiation treatment is lasting three minutes. That's the beam on time for the radiation treatment. Prostate's going to be moving anteriorly, posteriorly about four millimeters, supinf about four millimeters as well. If we missed, that would be a big problem. And if we put on giant margins to avoid missing, we would be overdosing parts of the bladder neck and parts of the rectum. And that's the, the rationale, of course, behind spacer as well. And so putting in the, the fiducial markers, we're able to take an x-ray or a CT before each treatment and then kind of align to that. That allows us to have a little bit tighter treatment planning margins. So I routinely was using fiducials on everybody until very, very recently, we, we got this newer tool, which is an MRI-guided linear accelerator. And in that, because we have an MRI on the machine, we don't need the fiducials. The reason we needed the fiducials was because you can't see the prostate on a standard X-ray or CT very well. But if you actually could see it, then you, then you would not need the fiducial markers. Those machines, unfortunately, are not widely available. And so I think anyone getting certainly SBRT, but even the longer courses of radiation should be having fiducial markers place. Okay. So we've got a good menu here. LDR, HDR, and external radiotherapy, as you've described. And the patient says, Dr. Kishan, you know, what's going to be the best option for me? Or if this was your dad, what would you do? So maybe we start out with a disease patient or anatomy specific characteristics that preclude a patient from any one of those options. Let's start out, we'll start out with the low dose brachytherapy. Who are the patients that are not good candidates? So I think the patients that wouldn't be good candidates for, for brachytherapy would be those that have a significant, for example, bleeding risk or some kind of relative contraindication to procedures or anesthesia in general, because that would be the only form of radiation, either HDR or LDR, that would require a procedure, as like would require it, as opposed to, say, the spacer, which is still a day of day elected. Then if we look at some of the older documents, and you alluded to some of this is probably historical, but larger prostates greater than 60 cc's or a large median low are relative contraindications to brachytherapy. The, this thing called pubic arch interference is a relative contraindication to brachytherapy as well because it might preclude the ability to place the catheters effectively during treatment. I think those things are, are more rare. And as you see more kind of recent studies, I think with advanced planning techniques and a little bit more kind of focus on whether the patient has symptoms or not, probably the larger prostate is not a true contraindication as much as, you know, symptomatic BPH is a contraindication. But that said, you know, someone that's not a good procedure candidate or has significant LUTs or really does have a big prostate, I think maybe steer away from the brachytherapy. And does that apply for both high dose and low dose? It applies for both high dose and low dose. Okay. So moving on to your external options. Why would somebody today want to receive conventionally fractionated eight to nine course external beam radiotherapy? 
I think largely it would be a, a fear of the fact that, you know, I'm getting radiation, right? And, and I, I, you know, high dose per radiation equals high side effects. I think that's the, that's the major fear. Based off of randomized trials, uh, that doesn't seem to be true. So the acute side effect toxicity of SBRT versus longer course of radiation and, and the pace speed trial from the UK were shown to be equivalent, both, you know, based by patient reported outcomes and kind of RTOG based toxicity. There was no difference, but there's still this fear. And I think it's, it's rational, right? I mean, I would think the same if I were a patient and I, I didn't know that studies have been done that you know, higher dose per day is going to be more side effects. I'd rather kind of do the, the lower dose per day. And I, I think the other thing would be on the provider side. A lot of radiation oncologists were also worried about that concern with SBRT, and that maybe hasn't permeated uh, into all the clinics. So there's still people who are a little bit wary about SBRT or even moderate hypofractionation. And it's that fear of side effects, I think. Got it. Yeah. I was at UT Southwestern for five years prior to moving out to San Diego to be closer to family, which was a big SBRT center. And I know in their initial phase two, they had a couple of pretty rough toxicities, retroutal fistula and so forth, that left a, left a lasting impression on the group there. But those are the early days. And they treated to very high doses. So I think that that's one major takeaway. And you're absolutely right. I think that UT Southwestern experience did kind of dampen enthusiasm. But I would note that, for example, we use 40 gray and five fractions here. I think it's worth kind of going into a little bit of the details. The UT Southwestern trial, they started at 40 gray and five fractions. Then they, it was a phase one, two trial. Then they went to 45 gray and then they went to 50 gray in five fractions. And in the initial phase one component, they didn't see toxicity. And so they went with the highest dose that was tolerable. And only in the phase two component, when they treated many more patients at that very high dose, did the toxicity start to pop up. And then they realized it was too high of a dose. So those toxicities, I mean, of, of course they, they happened and, and they certainly can happen when you treat to very high doses, but that's actually not the SBRT dose that is used. That was specifically a, a dose escalation trial where they really went high. Okay. You'd mentioned earlier possible boost to intraprostatic foci either radiographically or maybe targeted biopsies showed higher volumes of cancer. And then, you know, I think there's some pretty exciting data, flame trial and so forth that are just a part of our whole way of thinking about this. You know, of course, there's ablative technologies, which are really not in the scope of this one, HIFU, cryo, what have you, Tulsa. But can you talk a little bit about boosts and maybe on the other side of that? decreasing intensity nearing critical structures, i.e. neurovascular bundles, bladder, neck, or urethral sphincter when safe? Yeah, I think that's the future of, of the way that we're going to be doing external beam radiation oncology for prostate cancer. So we're kind of moving to precision. Precision medicine means a lot of things. I think for, for us, it also means physical precision or just the technical precision of the, of the treatment. So the FLAME trial was really a game changer because of all the dose escalation trials that have ever been done in prostate cancer. This was the only one that showed an improvement in biochemical recurrence-free survival without an increase in toxicity. So they were able to really safely increase the dose to the MRI-defined lesion without increasing grade two toxicity, either GI or GU, which for example, the brachytherapy boost wasn't able to do that. It did increase G grade two and even grade three toxicity, external beam, whole gland treatment, as we saw with that trial from UT Southwestern did increase grade three toxicity as well. 
So this focal dose escalation is kind of a game changer in, in that regard. And they didn't have some of these very fancy tools that we're talking about. They didn't have MRI guided radiation accelerators, you know, linear accelerators. They didn't have proton therapy. All to say it was just standard external beam radiation with even the conventional fractionation scheme. And they still saw this pretty profound improvement in biochemical control without toxicity. So I've adopted that in my practice. I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting that the flame trial was in the conventional setting. So that was the longer course of radiation. They've published exciting early data from their randomized trial of that flame approach in the context of SBRT is called the hypo flame trial. And so I'm comfortable treating with a modified flame approach in the SBRT setting with a kind of calculation of what dose would be okay to do. Although I'm not going super high, I think UT Southwestern and, you, and your colleagues there published a, a recent study that they went all the way up to 50 gray again, but they did it now just to the defined nodule only. And then the rest of the prostate got a more standard dose and they had very nice acute toxicity results there as well. And then the flip side of your question, which is, okay, if we can pump up the dose to the DIL, can we decrease the dose of the rest of the prostate? I think absolutely we can. And that's what we want to continue to study here. You know, some of the trials that are in development that, that we want to do are asking exactly that question. We probably don't need to be treating the whole prostate to such a high dose of radiation. We can drop the dose to the bladder, neck, the urethra, the rectum, and the neurovascular bundles pretty easily if we don't have to treat the entire gland as high a dose. Now, of course, as you know, Unfortunately, the dominant interprostatic lesions are oftentimes posterolaterally located, so it's going to be hard to spare both of the neurovascular bundles and part of the, the rectum is going to get the high dose of radiation. But it's a very attractive concept, and I'll plug Dr. Desai's trial, the potency trial, where they're kind of exploring this concept aggressively with the use of the hydrogel spacer and sophisticated radiation planning techniques to really drop the dose near the neurovascular bundle. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, it really is, I think, a similar idea, you know, just kind of downgrading this from a dangerous cancer to basically a non-dangerous cancer. You know, of course, there's always going to be the arguments about multifocal disease. This is kind of almost like a field defect cancer and non-dominant lesions, MRI invisible lesions. But I think it's a good, appropriate way to start out conservatively and highly select patients, get our experience, and then kind of ramp up. So let me ask you a question. If you didn't have any contraindications per se, and your patient said, Dr. Kishan, what would you do? What would you generally go with? So recognizing that everyone is going to be a little bit biased and I'm a, a bit of an SBRT guy, I, I would do the SBRT and that's what I would recommend. I will just say one thing, which I think is going to be the way of the future. And we're trying to build the evidence for this, but, but hopefully it makes sense. And is this idea of radiogenomics, which is that Probably a large portion of the unexplained toxicity is that we don't understand who's going to get side effects and, and how they might be sensitive to radiation. And so one of my active areas of research, not just mine, but, but other people as well, is to see if we can maybe move away from just a gestalt towards, can we do a screen to see if someone is a better candidate for one form of radiation or another, or maybe just a better candidate for surgery by looking at their DNA, their germline DNA. There's likely to be something very similar to, you know, the field of pharmacogenomics, something intrinsic to patients that might govern their reaction to radiation. So actually here, in all, in all honesty, we've developed a swab, a cheek swab that we think might identify patients at higher risk of grade two GU toxicity after SBRT versus after conventional fractionation. And so I would get that swab. And if I was at 
low risk after SBRT, I'd get SBRT. If I was at high risk after SBRT, I, I would not risk it. I would do a longer course of radiation or explore another treatment option. Yeah, that's amazing. And it, so one of my areas of focus is testicular cancer. And there's some really remarkable GWAS studies, long-term studies looking at, you know, why do some patients get secondary cancers, early onset heart disease, autotoxicity, neurotoxicity, nephrotoxicity. And I think what I'm kind of hearing is that you're trying to identify panels, maybe SNPs, what have you, that could predict toxicity to radiation. And it's exciting. And it kind of, I think, draws us to a nice spot where, you know, as we approach an hour, like what, what gets you excited about, you know, the future about treating these these men with favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer? What's coming through the pipes? I mean, you, mem- you mentioned MRI Linux, cheek swabs to predict toxicity, focal therapy. What do you think is going to be, you know, again, assuming they need to be treated, what is going to be the, the next big quantum leap in this disease state? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it'll probably be something like from my standpoint, the, the radiogenomics aspect, you know, can we identify someone who's going to be at high risk of side effects after radiation and, and divert them away from whatever the treatment is that's going to give them high risk of side effects? Because I think in favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, the outcomes are great. Whether they get surgery, whether they get radiation, they're going to be very likely cure of their disease. What we should be focusing on is optimizing their post-treatment quality of life. And, you know, we can do what we can in terms of improving the radiation delivery and all that. But if we could predict beforehand who's going to be the person that's going to have bad side effects after radiation, even better, because then we can counsel them, don't do this treatment, get another treatment that might ultimately be better for you and vice versa, you know. Well, Amr, this has been great. And I think it highlights again how, you know, radiation can be complicated, but can also be broken down into digestible bits. I mean, certainly for the urology community, I think it's important that at least we can provide a good broad stroke contemporary menu of options. And then on the radiation oncologist side, to me, it seems incumbent that you are able to comprehensively discuss all the options, pros and cons, and make them available and deliver them in a high quality fashion. And, you know, undoubtedly, you do that at UCLA. And actually, I just randomly got a text from the cancer center director here about a man that needed radiation in LA. And I was like, this is the guy that you've got to go with. So congrats again on all the incredible work that you've done. Thank you for sharing your your thoughtful insight and wisdom. And we'll have to do it again here out on the, on the West Coast, Amr. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Deng. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.